Welcome to the Gonzo Chronicles. I'm your host, Cyrus Alderwood, the official spokesman for Generation X. Stick around. It's going to get weird, as always. Hey, welcome back. Today's October, not October, man, wishful thinking. I want Halloween, but it's not quite time. It's August 20th, Saturday. So we have preseason football. I have my fantasy football draft coming up next weekend. A trip to Cincinnati should be fun. Should be fun. But I'll tell you what, folks. Uh, Every day we get closer to Halloween is an exciting day. I love the entire month of October, full of like fun horror films on TV. I try to find a couple extra on Netflix to watch during the course of that month. So, what have I been doing lately? Uh, other than work, <laughs> um, and uh, working on my Substack, as I mentioned on the last episode, I've been watching classic horror. And there's actually... I have a Roku TV in the bedroom, and there's an app I found on there for classic horror films. There's probably about 50 of them on there, 50 or 60. And, uh, I mean, talking about, like, Creature from the Black Lagoon, um, Nosferatu, all the greats, right? So, if you have a, a smart TV, try to find an app with classic horror. It's well worth it. It's well It's free, and it's well worth it. <clears throat> so, I've been actually... Watching a lot of uh, classic 70s horror films. Case in point, I watched one called Day of the Animals that I found on the Pluto app. Now, I'd seen that movie years and years ago. It's one of those climate movies where the climate's gone awry, the animals are turning on everybody and attacking. It's set in Northern California. Good film. Um, it's got Leslie Nielsen in it. Now, from the Naked Gun movies. Now, if you think it's going to be funny, he's actually a real jerk in this movie. So, uh, very different from some of the parts you may have seen with this guy. Uh, so, another one I've watched is Let's Let's Scare Jessica to Death. That was actually on... Yeah, I want to say it was on Pluto. I think, I think it was on Pluto. Um, and no, the uh, Day of the Animals is on the Tubi app. T-U-B-I. Um... And on the last episode, I said what I wanted to do with a few uh, Gonzo Chronicles podcasts is actually delve into some classic horror films that were actually based on some real-life event. There are some out there. I I know when you watch something like the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they always say up front, this is based on true events, that ominous voice. 
And a lot of them will still steal that from each other. However, there's a really interesting movie that came out uh, in 1976. And it it may be one of the first ones to say it was this is, big, this is a true story. Actually, it was a freaking true story. Uh, in 1976, this is one of two films from that era that actually um, were made in Arkansas based off of crazy things that happened in Arkansas. Arkansas might be a crazy place. Uh, one uh, was The Legend of Boggy Creek. The other was called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. That came out in 1976, and it was directed by this guy, uh, Charles B. Pierce. It's kind of kind of interesting that he directed this. Well, I'll get into this in a little bit, but this was uh, this is based loosely on a series of murders that happened in 1946 in Texarkana, and that's right on the border of Texas and Arkansas. But it's on the Arkansas side, so in Texarkana, they called it the Texarkana Moonlight Murders, and there was this unidentified serial killer, right? So. Anyway, I want to I want to get a little bit into the background of this. Um, now, again, like I said, it's set in Texarkana, which is someplace maybe one day I'll go. Who knows? So this masked gunman was known as the Phantom, and what he does is he's actually targeting teenagers in these lovers' lanes area around the area. And he in 1946, this is right after World War II. Uh, all these, you know, these people are coming back from the war, and uh, there's a, a local, um, you know, a military base, and everybody's afraid that's going to close down, but it, but it doesn't. It actually thrives because of the Cold War. So it really takes, a, you know, the, the town had been through a lot, to say the least. Uh, but then, right after World War II, somebody's targeting all these kids in lovers' lanes. Um, but, you know, this... Uh, this was this was not any kind of like fiction movie. The Moonlight Murders really shocked this whole community like right down to its core. It's it's um, if you can go back and read some of the old articles online, go do it. I mean it's it's not just a movie. So anyway, this movie came out two years after Chainsaw Massacre, and um, Charles B. Pierce he had uh, really did a great job, I guess, mirroring the, um, I guess, the particulars of the real murders that happened. Um, at the time, when this movie came out after Chainsaw Massacre, people kind of crapped all over it, right? The critics didn't like it. Um, they said what it was was like they took real portrayals of violence and kind of dummied it down, made it a little bit comical, things like that. So. Um, it, it really was just kind of shunned at the box office. But it's become a cult classic since then. And um, actually, I just watched this yesterday. Hadn't seen the movie in probably like 15 years or more, actually. So this uh, this actually had this really, really small budget for the time. Of uh, They called it a shoestring budget, but it was like 400000 Which, if you're an independent filmmaker today and you get 400000 for a movie, you're, you're really happy. But um, but this was a I guess a big budget you know box yeah I guess a, a studio movie but they but they had a, just a shoestring budget and they when they started shooting this like the last part of the script hadn't even been written 
when they started filming. And uh, they had all kinds of trouble on the set. Cast members are showing up like drunk or hungover. They'd stayed up partying all night. Um, but, you know, despite all of this, they got through the movie. And the movie actually made $5 million. And uh, the town that dreaded sundown actually was about a real-life mass gunman. What he did, I guess he took a pillowcase, cut out the eyes, and put it over his head. That's what he wore. Um, so back, let's go back in time here. So let's go back to 1946 when these murders are happening. So there was a, the first double homicide that happened. Um, and this Texas Ranger, uh, they called him the Lone Wolf, but his name is J.D. Morales. He comes up to Texarkana to team up with the local, I guess they refer to them as like Keystone Cops. They weren't, they weren't the brightest guys in the world. They weren't, well, let's just say they weren't really experienced with something like this. So they look really out of sorts. Um, so he, tept, he, he, uh, he works with this guy, Norman Ramsey, who's one of the deputies there. And did an, during an interview, Morales actually kind of calls the man the, uh, the phantom. And then that's what the newspapers pick up on. So everywhere in the world, you're reading about this, they call this guy the phantom. But anyway, Morales just vows to track this guy down. And um, in the end of the movie, it actually really comes to a really interesting thing with a, with a train where the killer gets on the train and gets out of town. And I'll explain why they ended the movie that way. But, <clears throat> you know, this is very different than, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, and, like, Hitchcock movies, which I love Hitchcock movies, right? But uh, this this is real-life murders at the, at the basis for these fictional antagonists. Um, there really was a mass killer called the Phantom. He really was gunning down couples in Texarkana. And this is where... The uh, the guy Charles Pierce grew up right in in uh, South Arkansas, so actually he was terrified uh, during the time of the killings as a kid. And I guess what he wanted to do is he said he wanted to transfer that same kind of fear and and uh, uncertainty to the big screen, that kind of like dread, I guess you know, town the dreaded sundown. Um, and at the very beginning. And I'm going to, this is verbatim. The incredible story you're about to see is true. Where it happened and how it happened. Only the names have been changed. And that was pretty much it. Um, so back in 1946, this was in February of 46, this guy named James and Robert Hollis, I guess they were brothers. They picked up a couple of gals that were their dates. So they're driving around in their dance, Plymouth and, uh, they drove downtown to Texarkana to the to the theater to watch a horror movie. Ironically, um, the theater uh, was called the Strand Theater, and um, at the corner of West and Main, and it's uh, two blocks from the Texas Arkansas state line, which kind of reminds me of a town close by called Bristol, because on State Street, Bristol, uh, Virginia, and Tennessee, right there is the border, right on State Street. So half is in Tennessee, half is in Virginia. We've all seen the little Geico commercial. <laughs> um, so it's kind of like that. But uh, Jimmy and uh, his date, um, I think her name, uh, Mary, Mary Larry, is that <laughs> what, as I'm reading this, um, 
they didn't know this, but they were about to live, live their own horror movie. So after this, they watch House of Dracula. Um, and then they, I guess they drop the other two off. Uh, and, you know, after seeing Frankenstein's monster get destroyed, right? <laughs> um, buried under this, this debris. So that, so anyway, the two couples, they, 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 they leave the movies. Uh, Jimmy dropped off, uh, his brother Bob and, and then his date. So he's finally alone with Mary. And, uh, so they, they go toward this place called Richmond Road. By the, by the time they get the, the lover's land is what it's called up there. It's a, it's unpaved. Um, it's getting kind of close to midnight. So Jimmy's a little nervous because he told his dad he would have his car back by midnight, but obviously that's not going to happen because these two are passionately kissing. <laughs> so suddenly this light comes straight through the window, according to Mary, who survived this attack. Um, the, you know, Jimmy saw this figure, right? With a white mask. And you have the flashlight in one hand and a pistol in the other pointed right at him. The guy apparently said, I don't want to kill you. Um, so what do I say? So the gunman, I guess he um, tells uh, Jimmy and Mary to get out of the car. Both of them come out through the driver's side door. Um, so they stood there and the, it's kind of cold out. They're stood there. It's cold as hell. And uh, this guy's just like staring at him, not saying a word. And then he tells Jimmy to take off his pants. And, of course, Jimmy didn't want to, but, you know, with a gun in his face, he eventually dropped his pants, and, uh, you know, because Mary's like, please just do it. Let's get this over with. So, anyway, once the guy gets his pants down, the killer, the phantom, um, just starts pistol whipping the shit out of this guy. He's, he's down on the ground. He's, you know, bleeding. He's, he's out. Like, he's... He's actually literally what had happened in the attack. He'd fractured his skull in a bunch of places. So the sound of these blows were so loud that, like, Mary said to the cops later on, she thought that um, his uh, his skull had uh, cracked and, you know, that the gun had went off or something. So now he turns to 19-year-old Mary. Now, she's just terrified, obviously. So she reaches down in Jimmy's pants and hands the guy Jimmy's wallet. And when she showed the guy that there was no cash, he just he got mad, apparently called her a liar, um, told her to get her purse from the Plymouth, so but she didn't have her purse with her, which is, you know, oddly. But then she got hit on the head, and the next thing you knew, she you know, was on the dirt road, and uh, as she started to get up, she thought she heard the guy say, run. But, um... So she does. She gets up. She's like staggering around toward this ditch, falls into it. Um, but, you know, she, she she starts running. She could hear this guy like kicking Jimmy while he's laying there half dead anyway. She could hear him just get kicking the piss out of this guy over and over and over. So anyway, she's staggering along this dirt road. She, she came up on this old car that was parked uh, facing um, a Plymouth, right? So she... She's really looking for help. So she looks inside. The car is empty. Uh, she just had started running again when the guy, he actually caught her. He asked her why in the world she was running, and she, she was confused and said that you told me to. Well, anyway, he slammed the gun against her head again, and uh, 
she just goes sprawling. Then, uh, you know, the unfortunate happens. This guy, the Phantom, crawls on top of poor Mary, rapes her, and, you know, she, anyway, when she came to, she didn't know how much time had passed. Um, so when the guy was done with her, he goes back to uh, Jimmy and um, <clears throat> to see if he's still alive. But um, when when he does, Mary manages to get up and run. And a uh, half a mile down the road, she spots a farmhouse, runs up to the farmhouse, starts beating on the door. And nobody answers, so she runs around to the back and is like beating on the door there too. Um, but it finally woke the people up. And then when they saw that this you know, young girl was all bloodied and trembling, you know, uh, under the light of their porch, they brought her in, called the sheriff's office. Um, obviously, smart thing to do, right? Well, by this time, Jimmy Hollis had actually managed to regain consciousness. He wasn't dead after all. And he managed to uh, get back to Richmond Road um, slowly. Um, but he didn't uh, have to wait too long before somebody drove past him. And they saw him, spotted him. Um, and uh, they, uh, they found out what happened and then went to get the cops. So anyway, the sheriff at the time, um, I think it's Bowie County, uh, he, he got to the scene pretty quick. He tried to interview both Mary and Jimmy, but Jimmy keeps slipping in and out of consciousness. Um, so uh, Sheriff Presley, he uh, said, okay, just go ahead and treat the guy. I'll talk to him later. And then went back and um, to the crime scene to look around, see what he could find out there. Uh, so Jimmy was in critical condition, bunch of skull fractures. Um, Mary had, I guess, cut her head pretty bad in the attack, so they had to stitch her up. Um, but back on Lover's Lane, where this happened at, uh, the cops and, uh, I guess, local investigators found the Plymouth. Uh, they found Jimmy's pants and uh, just this bloody patch just on the road, just blood everywhere, uh, where he had been just pistol whipped and beaten really bad. No other cars, though. Uh, but eventually, the sheriff, he did get back to Jimmy Hollis and, uh, and Mary. And um, Mary's description, this was kind of kind of weird. She, she described the old parked car on Lover's Lane that was empty. Um, and that it, it was uh, different from one that they spotted when she knocked on the door at the farmhouse. And she saw a car going by. And she thought, oh, God, the guy's coming back for me. But that wasn't the same car. So... Um, they managed to get a description of this phantom. Uh, they both kind of said she was, he was about six feet tall, you know, wearing the pillowcase mask. Jimmy thought it was a white guy, probably under 30. Mary swore that she thought he was black. And going back in 1946, there's a lot of segregation. And to keep from causing a lot of, uh, trouble, the sheriff kept that to himself. Um, never really commented on that aspect of whether he was black or white. So they went with the, you know, the least controversial one, even though the cops kept that to themselves and continued the investigation. Um, so Jimmy Hollis, who was 24, right, he, he survived this ordeal, barely. 
Um, he had uh, several months of medical treatment. Had to miss about a half a year's worth of work due to this. Um, PTSD really bad. Lots of nightmares, according to what I read. Uh, Mary, she uh, she got out of there. Um, she moved to Oklahoma to live with some relatives. Never came back. Can't blame her. Um, but anyway, moving forward, people just thought this was like a one-off crime. It was kind of a rough area anyway. But here, let's fast forward to March 24th. About 8.30 in the morning, um, this unidentified driver, he approached a stationary Oldsmobile. No, written near uh, Rich Road, which is not Richmond Road, but different road. Uh, he just assumed the occupants were stuck in the mud or something. They could use some help. When he approached the vehicle, he looked through the glass. And what did this guy find at 8.30 in the morning? Two dead corpses. <laughs> Caked in blood. Okay, so the sheriff's called back. Uh, so he arrives with the, the uh, chief of police on the uh, Texan side of the city. So they identify the two bodies as a guy by the name of Richard Griffin, who was 29, and a 17-year-old girl named Polly Ann Moore, uh, both dead. Uh, Moore, uh, Polly Ann was laying on a blanket um, covering the back seat, had a gunshot wound to the back of her head. Her uh, purse is on the floor and empty. Uh, Griffin, uh, Richard Griffin, Talk about robbing the cradle, 29-17. Then felt like going to jail today. <laughs> anyway, uh, he was he was uh, kneeling on the floor, right, between the front and back seats. Um, he was dead, too. Um, there was a lot of blood outside of the car, which the cops decided, you know, after investigating, looked at the scene, they were killed outside of the car and placed that way inside of the car. Um, so whoever killed them... Uh, they he bundled their bodies in the, the back of this old Oldsmobile, and um, people just you know wandered upon the scene and found it that way, which which was a uh, pretty rough. Just like with uh, the last victim, uh, poor Polly Ann was raped. Also, uh, the mass killer he struck again uh, on Sunday, April fourteenth. Um, but nobody found out what happened until sunrise. This guy named G.H. Weaver, he was driving along a place called North Park Road in Prescott, or on his way to Prescott uh, with his wife and son, when he saw a lifeless uh, body of a young man on the north shoulder of the road. So here the cops came back to the crime scene, uh, said that the guy had been shot through the right hand, the same bullet continuing to strike him on the left side of the face. So when uh, he turned to escape, I guess the guy had been fired twice more, shot him through the back uh, of his left shoulder and in the head. Not far from the body, uh, the sheriff came upon this uh, address book. And uh, he kind of put that you know, in his pocket. Didn't really tell anybody else what he had found at the time. Um, but the victim was a guy by the name of uh, James Paul Martin. 16-year-old kid of a place called Kilgore, Texas. Who, uh, who was from Texarkana, uh, he just had to, went back home just to visit to stay with a friend. Uh, uh, so uh, his friend's name was Tom, it says here. 
So Saturday afternoon, I guess this kid had uh, asked uh, Betty Jo Booker, his 15-year-old uh, uh, friend uh, that he had known since kindergarten, he asked her out for a date. And she kind of reluctantly agreed, and um, she was a, a, a saxophonist with this jazz group. So Betty had uh, performed at this uh, Veterans of Foreign War dance night. And uh, so she was uh, seen leaving with this guy, James, um, between like 1.30 and 2 a.m. That's pretty late for kids back then. So anyway, she never made it home. And, um, you know, this, uh, everybody was looking for her. And they knew that she was with James. They found James' dead body. So everybody starts looking for Betty Jo. Um, local volunteers, police, everybody. James Martin's car is nowhere to be found at this point. So the cops assumed, yeah, if we find the car, we'll find Betty Jo. Um, but uh, she was eventually found, uh, fully clothed. Uh, she was behind a tree in this uh, heavily wooded area. Um, and uh, found around noon later on that day. So she was lying in the leaves. Her right hand was tucked in, uh, in the pocket of her buttoned-up coat, which is kind of odd. She had also been shot on the left side of her face and, uh, again, like point-blank range in the heart. Uh, so Betty Jo was found on Morris Lane, which is more than two miles from where her date was found. And so Tom Moore of uh, Morris Lane... Um, informed the police that he'd heard gunshots around 5.30 that morning. So that's roughly when it, apparently this, this has happened. James Martin's vehicle, he was finally located about four or 500 yards from the main entrance of this place called Spring Lake Park. Ironically, I live in a place called Lake Park. When I was watching the movie, I was like, huh, I didn't pick that up years ago, but uh, now I do. So anyway, the key was still in the ignition. Um... It was about a mile and a half from where uh, the Martin crime scene was, where they found his body. And it was more than three miles away from Betty Joe's body. So how in the world did that happen? <laughs> you know, um, there's there's no way of knowing what, what really happened and, you know, that separated their bodies so far apart. Um, so they had, the, so now by, by now they've had like a handful of, Shells that they found at these crime scenes. At some crime scenes, it was 22s. Um, at this one, it was 32 caliber shells. Uh, all around the outside of the car. That's where they found them. So the you know the, the slug casings uh, just really they matched um, in forensic uh, evidence. And so they said the same pistol that was used on March 24th, the the double murder, uh, now matched Martin's body. So. Now that they knew that they had a serial killer on the loose, everybody's kind of freaked out. Um, the FBI determined, as now that they're in, just like just like poor Polly Ann and Mary, Betty Jo Booker had been raped. Um, now her saxophone was missing, but they found it like several months later, uh, about a hundred yards from where she was. Um, so in isolation, I guess the first double murder just didn't, like I said, didn't nobody batted an eyelash over this because uh, it was kind of a rough place. 
uh, once it's clear now that we have a gunman on the loose that's responsible for uh, the Martin Booker killings uh, and, you know, all these others now, um, citizens are kind of in a, in a fren frenzy at this point. They're in a bit of a panic. We're talking about 1946 America here, you know, after World War II. Everybody just wants peace, but yet here we are. Um, after a few months, like nothing is found out. This, this, you know, this phantom killer keeps eluding the investigations. So after about three months of this guy, Lone Wolf, that showed up, uh, Gonzalez said he was going to solve this. Um, he kind of has to pack up shop and leave. Um, that hadn't, nothing happened in like three months. So, um, you know, the last thing that had occurred was like in the middle of the night on a Friday, May 3rd, at a property like 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. So it wasn't really down in Texarkana. Uh, this housewife had gone to bed early. Right? This was the last occurrence of where this guy had been shooting. So um, her name was Katie Stark. So she goes to bed early. Uh, she's just kind of laying there in her gown. And, you know, the it's dark inside the farmhouse because there's, you know, not much of a moon. They don't have any lights on, I guess. Or maybe they didn't have lights anyway. Uh, anyway, in the living room, um, her husband, I guess, uh, was, he had, I guess, a bad back. And he was sitting down there reading the Texarkana Gazette and listening to the radio. And uh, anyway, she hears a strange noise from outside. So she yells down to ask her husband to turn down the radio. Um, but no answer came. All she heard is a glass breaking. Uh, so she's thinking maybe he dropped something. She got out of bed and hurried down to the living room. And uh, I guess her husband stood up from his armchair with this you know, this shocked look on his face. The guy had been shot. He's leaking blood. And uh, anyway, Katie's horrified. Uh, so she runs to the phone. That's, uh, you, know, you know, belted on the kitchen wall. You know, those old tiny phones that they had on, on the wall. And then she feels something hit the left side of her face. Blood and teeth go flying on the kitchen floor. Um, anyway, she for whatever reason, reached down to the floor, found one of her gold-filled teeth uh, before grabbing it and then, like, you know, getting out of there. She uh, went up to the master bedroom um, and then through that down a hallway to another bedroom, uh, then through the living room, and then she apparently went out on the front porch uh, into the yard and darted across the highway. And where she got to a neighbor's house to tell them what it, what had happened, um, and uh, or anyway, the neighbor comes out with a gun because everybody's carrying a gun now, thinking they don't, they don't know what's going to happen with this killer on the loose. Well, anyway, they bring her in. This guy fires a warning shot out into the sky to let anybody know, hey, if you come here, we're armed, we're shooting back. Um, so at that point, uh, they get her to. Um, you know, hospital, uh, and, you know, she just kind of was just like slumped up in the front seat, just bleeding everywhere on the way and uh, in and out of consciousness. Anyway, um, once they got to the hospital, they realized that she'd been shot through the face. Now, fortunately she would survive. Um, 
But, you know, this was considered to be the last of the so-called, as they called them, moonlight murders by this phantom. Uh, but some people doubt that that one was connected uh, because there were really weird circumstances. But it was in the movie. Um, there's some really weird circumstances. Uh, whoever fired the shots had killed Virgil Stark, her husband, and wounded her. Um, you know, the similarity is that it's a male and a female. But, you know, this was at an older married couple, not people on Lover's Lane, you know. So that was that was very different. Um, Starks were hit with 22 bullets. Uh, previous homicides were like a 22 and 32s. Uh, but um, the uh, Virgil Stark, I guess, had been having an affair. All right, this, was, this is where it got twisted with this part. He was having an affair with a married woman whose husband had uh, recently got back to the area, who was in World War II. Um, so, you know, he had motive, but nothing ever happened. Anyway, a few days after the, that attack, um, the cops found a partially dismembered body of this vagrant uh, discovered on the railroad tracks about 15 miles north of Texarkana. And uh, this is uh, Little River County. Um, the uh, the guy's name was Earl McSpadden. Okay, that's a weird name. Um, though he was he was already dead. Uh, his corpse had been just mutilated by these trains. I guess a train that came through around five thirty. Um, but when they did the uh, autopsy, they noticed that the that Earl this vagrant right. Um, he had uh, defensive uh, wounds on his body. So it looks like he had, was in a struggle with somebody with a knife. And uh, they found a, a deep wound um, two or three inches along his left temple uh, that, that could have caused death. So they had no physical evidence or, you know, linking him to the killings, uh, the killings of Texarkana. But this gave a lot of speculation to a scenario uh, that happened at the end of the movie. Um, so this here's the speculation. In one, in one sense, he could have been the Phantom Killer himself, who, you know, just, I guess, wrecked with guilt, decided to put an end, and uh, threw himself under a train. Uh, doubtful. Another story, um, this is where the movie went. Uh, another theory says that he was the Phantom's last victim uh, before he maybe went somewhere else and did this. Uh, he last victim because um, maybe this vagrant knew too much or saw something. And uh, while none of the, you know, this really didn't mean a whole lot, it, it, it goes a long way to say you know, the dramatic escape there at the end of the town, the dreaded sundown, uh, was that the Phantom hopped on a train out of town. Um, so I don't know, should they ever remake this movie? Probably not. But the fact that the guy who, uh, I guess the director producer guy who grew up under the shadow of this guy, the phantom killer, um, and, uh, decided to make a movie about it later on. It's actually pretty cool. And the fact that there's some tie in there with the, the, uh, legend of Boggy Creek also kind of cool. 
so uh, yeah, the town that dreaded sundown. The movie actually based on real freaking events. I know that's kind of uh, an old movie, but man, if you get a chance to check it out, um, if you go to the Pluto app and do a search uh, on your TV, you'll find uh, the town that dreaded sundown there. So watch it. Interesting film, folks. True events. So I'll be back. There's, there's a whole bunch of horror films that are actually based off real events. And I'm going to go over quite a few of them before Halloween. But I wanted to start off with The Town That Dreaded Sundown simply because I have been obsessed with 70s horror lately. There you have it. And if you get a chance, go over to my Substack. Um, find me on uh, Facebook. The Substack is over there, Cyrus Alderwoods. It's called Cyrus's Gonzo Zone. And uh, I'm writing a lot of stuff about the 80s and fun movies there. Uh, just wrote one about Better Off Dead, the John Cusack film from the 80s, Diane Franklin. Great movie. Um, so I wrote a good synopsis on it because you know why? God, how do our us Gen Xers are feeling a little long in the tooth? This movie next week will be 37 years old on uh, August 23rd, the 37th year. So happy anniversary of the movie Better Off Dead. Uh, go go check out my Substack. Make sure you subscribe. Uh, there's a free version, and then if you want some little a few extra articles, uh, kind of want to get into my head a little bit. You can subscribe for $5 a month, um, or you can do an annual subscription. Save yourself a few dollars and do 50 bucks. Uh, it's not much. I want to thank those uh, who are listening who have already subscribed, uh, free subscribers and paid subscribers. Thank you both, uh, both of you guys uh, very much. Um, so first, I haven't even really promoted Substack much, but uh, it's actually starting to grow. And I haven't even done promotion. So thank you to both the free subscribers and to the paid subscribers. I greatly appreciate it. So uh, um, hop on over there. Read some fun stuff. Have some fun. Leave some comments. Let me know what you're thinking. Um, did you like Better Off Dead? Did you like this podcast? So maybe I'll do a little write-up about the town that dreaded sundown. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. I'll be back with another episode soon. Cheers, and I will see you on down the road.